I've reported other people's stories for a long time, confronting people in power. But behind this broadcast voice, I've hidden my greatest secret. I was in an abusive marriage. It lasted a year, but it changed my life. Part of me always blamed myself for what happened, and I've lived with the shame. So many of us live like this. It's time we change that. I'm Anna Maria Tremonti. Welcome to Paradise is my story. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Fears the conflict will widen is only growing. Iran, of course, is very close to Hezbollah and has significant ties to Hamas. Three drones targeted two different U.S. air bases. Highly unusual move. We are in a almost uncharted territory right now. How October 7th and its fallout could ignite a larger Middle East conflict. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... India's journalists under fire. Either you are with the nation state or you're against it. How nationalism and state censure limits India's news. Return of a timeless classic. It's a me's and wahoos. There's a new Mario game, but should you play it? And the hottest pepper on earth. It was probably one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life. Braving the scorching heat of Pepper X. All today on day six. The X marks the hot edition. The whole region is at the brink of falling into the abyss that this new cycle of death and destruction is pushing us towards. The threat of this war expanding is real. The cost this will bring on all of us is too much to bear. That's King Abdullah of Jordan speaking earlier this week. It has been two weeks since Hamas fighters launched an attack on Israel, killing 1,400 people and taking about 200 hostages. Since then, Israel attacks in Gaza have killed at least 4,000 people. This week, a flurry of diplomatic activity focused on preventing the situation from spiraling outwards and potentially engulfing half a dozen other countries and fighting forces. Fernaz Fasihi is a longtime foreign correspondent who spent many years reporting from the Middle East. She's now the UN Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Fernaz, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. Thank you for having me. King Abdullah of Jordan said this week, and this is a quote, the whole region is at the brink of falling into the abyss. How close do you think we are to a wider regional war? I think the threat and risk of a wider regional war are very real. And I think that if the Israeli offensive against Gaza continues, and if the supporters of Hamas, including uh, Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah feel like Hamas is facing an existential threat, uh, they might step in and attack Israel from other fronts, as they have warned that they might do. And, and when you say Iran might step in, do you mean step in directly or, or through their emissaries, through their powers in the region? So Iran has a sort of a network of proxy militias from Yemen to Syria to Iraq and Lebanon and also Islamic Jihad and Hamas in Gaza that it has supported and funded and uh, they're known regionally in the Middle East as the axis of resistance Mm -hmm. and they share a common goal to resist Israel's existence and to free Palestinian lands of Israel. That's the common goal that they have. You know, Iran 
by the re- close relationship that it has to these groups,、uh, can encourage them to. Attack Israel. The Iranian foreign minister said openly on state television that if the、uh, strikes in Gaza that are killing civilians don't stop, if a humanitarian channel isn't opened, these other fronts opening against Israel is inevitable. Now, having said that, Iran also says that if we are not directly attacked by Israel or by the U.S., we don't intend to directly. Uh, get involved in the war,、uh, but it really does seem like Israel wants to not have to fight other wars and stay focused on their stated goal, which is to go after Hamas and eradicate it. And, and all parties are now looking towards Gaza, waiting to see what's going to happen there. But but how likely do you think it is that Hezbollah could launch more attacks into Israel? I think it's very likely. I think that's one of the、um, theaters that we've seen in the past week. Uh, steadily heat up, right? It started from exchanging a few fires last week, and I think Hezbollah launched something between twenty to thirty missiles into Israel, and the Israelis have attacked the, the border. It seems right now that Hezbollah doesn't want an all-out war, and Israel doesn't want an all-out war because that again would be very risky and would be complicated because Hezbollah is much better armed than Hamas is. It has precision strike. Uh, missiles and and can you know create more of a a challenge in the northern border for Israel. So I think that maybe the intentions right now are to keep that、uh, contained, but、uh, of course it's unpredictable. And why do you think Israel has not launched a ground invasion yet? What's what's holding them back? I think the ground invasion into Gaza is a very challenging and difficult decision. It's a decision that Israeli government has up to now avoided in their previous offensive against Hamas in Gaza,、uh, because it's an urban environment that Hamas militants know.、Uh, there are underground tunnels, apparently, with rocket launchers, so it could be very risky for the Israeli military, and it puts their soldiers at risk. And and also, I think that. It will ignite a, a wider fury in the sort of Arab public opinion and the Arab street that might be coming into consideration too. The other thing is, if Israel invades Gaza by ground force, it's not clear exactly what their long-term plan is.、Mm-hmm. Do they plan to stay in Gaza and occupy it, or run it,、uh, or do they plan to go in for sort of surgical? Uh, operations that are short term and then exit. So this is the plans that are not exactly clear and are、uh, dangerous and risky. But it does seem inevitable. It's from what we're hearing. It it seems like it is a matter of of time before they invade. There are other. Forces and interests that we haven't talked about. What what risk is there that militias in Iraq or or Syria could get involved?、Uh, the the risk is very real. As、uh, I was just saying, Iran's foreign minister Hossein Amir Abdullahian went on this whirlwind tour around the region where he met with、uh, Syria's President Bashar Assad. He also met with officials in Baghdad and Nasrallah. In Lebanon and Hamas's leaders in Qatar, and when he returned, he said that these various militias、uh, from Yemen to Syria and Iraq have their hands on the trigger. On、um, Wednesday night, Iran state television broadcast a special segment 
detailing exactly how these attacks could unfold. They said that Iraqi militia have already been pre-positioned in Syria. They've already been deployed to Syria near the Golan Heights with Syrian militia. The state television special also said that uh, if other fronts open, the Houthis in Yemen would attack Israel with drones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Hezbollah would attack from the north and from the east. Syrian and Iraqi militia would also attack. So whether you call it propaganda, whether you call it rhetoric, it seems also from our own reporting that these proxies have been told to have been placed on high alert. They've been told to be ready in case there is an order or a decision to get involved. In the midst of this, U.S. President Joe Biden was in Israel on Wednesday, and, and he, he has a stated goal of preventing the violence from getting any worse than mm-hmm. it already has. The U.S. has sent a huge amount of military support and equipment to the region. How much influence do you think the U.S. will have in what happens next? The U.S. Um, fears uh, that a wider war could um, sort of engulf the region and also put its troops in uh, Syria and in Iraq at risk. Uh, It also doesn't want to engage in in a war with Iran. And uh, while the U.S. does not have much influence over Iran or Hezbollah or the proxies, it has been sending messages uh, through intermediaries, through European embassies in, in Iran, through Qatar and Oman. They've been sending messages to Iran saying that we're not interested in a direct war, our warships are not in the region to attack you, and warning Iran, don't think about attacking Israel, uh, and uh, we want to keep this contained, right? So that message seems to be circulating, at least. I want to end with what it is like inside Israel right now, because Israeli defense forces took a major hit to their reputation on October 7th. It must have been an enormously heavy psychological burden. Israel's enemies might think there's an opportunity here. How do you assess Israel's readiness for what could be a wider conflict? I think that Israel's enemies in the region had sort of looked at the internal divisions that were playing out in Israel over the past year and thinking that if there's a time to strike, maybe this is the time now because Israel is divided and uh, sort of dealing with its own domestic issues in a vulnerable place. And I think that the horror of the terrorist attack in Israel on October 7th and the civilians that were killed has made Israel resolved Mm -hmm. in trying to make sure that this doesn't happen again and in also redeeming its military and intelligence sort of capability and reputation. So the, the determination to bring down Hamas and to secure their citizens or or also send this message for other actors not to think about uh, staging another terror attack similar to October 7. I think we can safely say that the resolve is now there in Israel uh, to make sure it doesn't happen again. Fernaz Fasihi, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Brent. Fernaz Fasihi is the UN Bureau Chief for the New York Times. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. It will be another move to reduce the number of uh, Anglophone uh, students. And I am committed to stop the decline of French in Quebec. 
Last week, Quebec Premier François Legault's government announced it would nearly double tuition fees for out-of-province students. As you heard, the goal is to stop what he calls the decline of French in Quebec. But this week, McGill University announced that in response to the tuition hike, it's postponing a French-language program. McGill was set to invest $50 million into a program to help staff and students learn the French language. 22% of McGill students come from out-of-province, and nearly half of its student body speak English as their mother tongue. And many of the large uh, banks raised salaries in 2022 to help with inflation that was skyrocketing, um, and they also ramped up hiring. What a difference a year makes. On Wednesday, Scotiabank announced it's cutting 2,700 jobs worldwide. A day later, Desjardins said it would be cutting 400 jobs from its workforce. And in August, RBC, Canada's largest bank, said it planned 1,800 layoffs as the economy slows. With the growth of online banking, fewer people are visiting bank branches. RBC CEO Dave McKay also attributes some of the market slowdown to a slower economy in China and elevated climate and geopolitical risks. Still to come on Day 6, Super Mario Brothers Wonder is the first new Mario game in years. But if you're wondering if you should play it, John Orr is coming up to tell us. I'm Brent Bambury. First thing I said was, Wow, this is tasty. Then I swallowed, which was the first mistake. Ed Curry knows hot peppers. He eats them with every meal. But the one he's describing here is not like most peppers. My arms went tingly. uh, My legs went tingly. uh, My body was kind of shaking. And the flame in my mouth just got unbearable. Ed is describing what happened after he ate an entire Pepper X, which just earned the Guinness World Record as the hottest pepper in the world. And he ate it on camera with the guys from the YouTube channel Hot Ones. Just that violent and ever-growing thing that is somehow making my face tighter. Like, the skin of my face feels tighter. It was kind of like I was in a... uh, a Simpsons episode in a dream state, you know, because people were like wavy and I was feeling all wavy. And the fun didn't stop when he got in the car. As soon as we got into the tunnel, the cramps started hitting and the poor lady who was driving the car didn't know what was going on in the back of that suburban. Okay, I've never seen anybody so happy to have someone out of a vehicle. Ed says it took another two hours for the pepper to wear off. I literally stumbled out of the car and I saw this marble slab and I just laid down on that marble slab in the pouring rain groaning. So yes, don't try that at home. And really, Ed says he should have known better because he's the guy who invented Pepper X. It's three times hotter than the next hottest pepper in the world, the California Reaper, which is also an Ed Curry creation. Ed is in the test kitchen of his hot sauce business, the Pucker Butt Pepper Company. Ed, good morning. Welcome to day six. Good morning, Brent. It's an honor to be on. Well, it's an honor to talk to you, and I want to ask you about this video that's on the internet where you pop an entire Pepper X into your mouth, because that seems crazy. It was probably one of the stupidest things I've ever done in my life. 
<laughs> what do you still have a mouth left? Uh, well, yeah, I do. I actually, you know, even though that was about six hours of extreme pain, uh, when all the pain was over, we went out to dinner and I ate more peppers. <laughs> you know, I'm just an idiot. You can ask my wife; she'll tell you. Well, what it seems like you must have to have some sort of special qualification to be able to do what you did. What's the difference between me and you when it comes to eating one of those? Well, all of us have a different tolerance towards heat, okay? You know, it's kind of like uh, drinking beer. When you're young and you have a beer, one or two beers really sets you off. Yeah. If you turn into an alcoholic, a case of beer might do the same thing. Uh, so I'm essentially a pepperaholic. I've been eating peppers for so many decades that even though I can feel the heat in, say, like a jalapeno, it really doesn't do anything for me. But you so, suffered when you ate the Pepper X. So, oh, yeah. The, the heat was brutal immediately. And it's a full body experience when you eat that much capsaicin at one time. Well, well uh, when you do it, but what happens? What would happen if I did it? Would, would I? You just throw up immediately. Ed, we're talking about food. We're talking about peppers. What's yeah, the point? What's the point of creating a, a, a piece of food that is so vile to some people that they can't they can't keep it in their in their gut well when you when you make it into a hot sauce or a salsa and you don't use that much of it it's actually a really tasty pepper it has a good uh, taste yeah yeah uh but you know you use small quantities and it goes a very long way let's let's <laughs> let's quantify this how how spicy is pepper x compared to other hot peppers that are out there Okay, well, say my last record with Guinness was the Carolina Reaper at 1.642 million Scoville heat units. Pepper X is 2.693 million Scoville heat units. And that is not a linear scale. Uh, that's more like a logarithmic scale. So uh, Pepper X is actually three times hotter than what was the world record just a month ago. And, and you, you also bred the previous world record as well. That was your creation. Yes, I have. And there's many peppers that are in between them and more yet to come. Well, what is, <laughs> what is, what is it about you that, that wants to unleash these things on the world as well as taste them yourself? What, what is well, it about it, Ed Curry? It was a more, more it was uh, it wasn't about getting the hottest pepper in the world. What I'm looking to do is raise certain capsinoid levels that we believe actually, uh, and science is proving they actually have uh, uh, the potential to help with heart disease, help with ALS, obesity, addiction, all sorts of things. Uh, so what we're doing is raising those levels in peppers to see if scientists can do anything with them. But then, you know, the, the pepper sauce industry has just taken off so much that we're taking all the leftovers and turning them into uh, hot sauce. <laughs> so it's harvest season now. When people yes. pick these peppers and touch their eyes, do they have to go to the hospital? No, there's nothing really that can happen to you uh, medically from a pepper other than the perception of pain and those cramps that you get. So when you're when you're cooking down the peppers to make a sauce, you don't have to wear a hazmat suit. Oh no, we have to wear all the all the stuff required by the FDA. And a lot of the guys do wear hazmat suits and glasses and masks and stuff because it's it gets difficult to breathe, you know, with all that stuff in the air. 
Uh, but uh, you know, I I don't I don't wear those things when I'm experimenting. And there's quite often that I rub my eye and I'm like, damn. There's also time when I I uh, go to the bathroom and then that is extreme pain. You know? <laughs> I know. I'll bet. Uh, so it took you 10 years to come up with Pepper X. Is this is this the ultimate, or can Pepper X be dethroned as having the highest Scoville scoring of all time? Well, my lawyers don't want me to say it, but, uh, you know, we're always working on new stuff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask you about the name of your company, the Pucker Butt okay. Pepper Company. Where does that come from? It used to be Smoke and Ed's Pepper Company. But uh, I was, my wife ran a Christian rescue mission, the female half of it. And uh, I was, we were, a bunch of us were in the van going to an event, and they were talking about uh, toilet humor, what happened uh, when they ate my hot sauce or my salsa. And someone said it made their butt pucker. And it was either me or my wife. She takes the claim now that we're doing interviews, but... I think I was the one who said, well, if it doesn't make your butt pucker, it's not a pucker butt pepper. And those ladies gaggled and, uh, you know, they were just laughing the whole trip about it and saying pucker butt, pucker butt. So I went on LegalZoom and it was it was available. It was available. You know, so I took it. Ed, you're at work right now, but but when you're off the clock and you're out for dinner just for fun, how spicy do you want your jerk chicken to be? Uh, you know, I always bring stupid hot stuff with me everywhere I go, and then uh, we're going to go have chicken tonight at a place called Super Chicks, and uh, I'll bring a mild hot sauce for my wife and my family, you know, and then I'll bring something stupid hot for myself, and maybe a couple peppers if, you know, but usually she yells at me if I whip out my knife and the peppers <laughs> when we're out in public. Ed Curry, it was great to talk to you. Congratulations on Pepper X. Great to talk to you, too. Ed Curry is the founder of the Pucker Butt Pepper Company and the guy behind Pepper X. You don't have to be a hardcore gamer to recognize that iconic sound. The first Super Mario Brothers game came out 38 years ago. And that sound you just heard is from the latest version, Super Mario Brothers Wonder, which dropped yesterday. And this is the first Mario game since 1996 where Mario is not voiced by Charles Martinet. In a landscape now dominated by complex open-world games, the new Super Mario stays true to its original spirit. You're still getting Mario in his iconic uniform, running left and right in a two-dimensional world. But there's also new stuff and innovative elements in Wonder. Jonathan Orr is our Day 6 gaming whiz. He's here to tell us if Super Mario is still worth your time in 2023. John, welcome back. Hi, Brent. You know, usually, John, when you come here, you talk about complex plots from multi-dimensional games that you've spent some 70 hours playing. But this is Super Mario. Mm -hmm. So 
this is going to be simpler, right? What's going on in Super Mario Brothers? 1? Well, actually, if you examine the complex political climate between the flower and mushroom, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, this is a really simple game. Um, it is a Mario game like all other Mario games. Uh, this time, Mario and his uh, compatriots, including Luigi, Princess Peach, they visit the nearby Flower Kingdom, which we've never heard of before, but that's fine. Um, they visit Prince Florian and his like flower uh, flower subjects which are kind of like the tiny toads from the mushroom kingdom uh of course the big bad bowser the mean um big turtle guy voiced by jack black in the movie although not here he attacks the flower kingdom um uses the power of something called the wonder flowers it's like this magical um flower to uh take over the flower kingdom's main castle and combine with it so he's merging with a castle and now the main a villain is a gigantic floating castle with Bowser's <laughs> face on it. Um, being vaguely threatening, maybe he's planning a disaster, maybe he's planning a heavy metal concert. It's very ambiguous at first. Uh, but really, this is just set dressing, so you can run around the Flower Kingdom and play a lot of really cool levels. There's a different Mario actor voice in this game. It's the first time in, in many years that we've got a new Mario. What can you tell us about the new voice and how that change feels? So, yes, for years, ever since 1996, Charles Martinet was the voice of Mario. Uh, he really defined that voice for Mario way back in 1996 for Super Mario uh, 64. Earlier this year was announced that he is moving out of that role. He's going to become more of a brand ambassador. Um, so now stepping into that role is an L.A.-based actor named Kevin Afghani. He's great. He basically just does the Mario voice that everybody knows and loves. Uh, it's, it's maybe a slightly younger-sounding version of that voice. Again, this is not a fully voiced, dialogue-heavy, cutscene-heavy game. Right. This is Kevin right. doing the same, like, it's a me's and wahoo's. The Nintendo-style guide absolutely dictates that Mario must sound like this, and uh, the new voice actor totally does that absolutely fine. Okay, so obviously this makes you feel like a kid again, but what did you love about playing Super Mario Brothers Wonder? I think it was the level design and the surprises. So the gimmick here is that every level has something called a Wonder Flower, and if you find it, uh, it kind of changes the level's uh, effects or geometry in some strange, surprising way. Uh, every one is different, and some of them just made me yell in joy or surprise. So sometimes getting a Wonder Flower will tilt the geometry so that everything is suddenly shifted to the left and everything is falling to the left, and you have to figure that out. Sometimes it will summon a gigantic version of an enemy in the level that is like as big as the screen, and suddenly you have to you know run away from it or see what's going on. Other times it does something really weird, like um, in the very second level, it turns the entire level into a musical piece where the piranha plants start dancing and singing uh, to tune. Like a Broadway musical? Yes, it, it turns into a Broadway musical. Cool. The name of the name of the song shows in the bottom of the corner, like a, <laughs> like a music video. It is extremely strange. The one thing I would say that if you're a parent playing with kids, you might have to figure out how to talk around the idea of psychedelic substances once in a while. Um, it is extremely weird and extremely surprising. Okay, and how long have you played Mario games? Probably since I was like five or six. So yeah, it's been it's been a long time. So so the Mario franchise is as old as you are. Yes. So Super Mario Brothers, the very first one for the Nintendo Entertainment System, came out in 1985, which is a year before I was born. I'm hearing enthusiasm for wonder this morning, but I'm wondering whether it's just because you know it's it's tied into your past and to your identity because this is really 
a 2D game with a simple storyline. I don't know if younger gamers who haven't been into Mario as long as you have will like it as much. What do you think? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I think it's interesting because Nintendo is maybe one of the only big video game houses still making 2D games like this. There's really no one else making at like a AAA budget side-scrolling 2D platformers. There's something extremely elemental about that kind of game. It's so easy to understand. You move to the right, you run and jump. You can see everything that's happening around you. This one is so simple and easy to understand. I think any kid will will immediately uh, enjoy this game. And, you know, like, kids are still kids. Like, you know, if this is their first video game, this might be the perfect place for them to start, as opposed to anywhere else. Um, I, although I will mention, when I was a kid... I played my cousin's Nintendo, but I was a Sega kid. <laughs> so I had the Sega Genesis, and I was Team Sonic the Hedgehog, which is another <laughs> thing altogether. So you know, as far as my own like nostalgia and, and identity, this is maybe a bit of a code-switching moment. Okay, but John, it sounds like Super Mario Brothers Wonder won you over. Was there anything you didn't like about the game? Yeah, um, it would probably fall under like a list of nitpicks. The game is not that long. I wish it was a little a little bit longer. How long did it take? It's maybe about eight to ten hours to get to the end. Okay. There are certainly secret levels and extra challenges, so like the length is absolutely fine. It's just that the game is so wonderfully crafted. I wish there was more of it. Mm -hmm. Some of the challenges are a little bit more difficult than others. And if you're playing on the Nintendo Switch's handheld controls, like the Joy-Con controllers, the joysticks are just a little bit wibbly-wobbly. And when you're kind of jumping from left to right, it can be a little bit hard to make sure your jumps are as precise as they should be. So you might want to get one of the more expensive Pro controllers to play with it instead. So that's a little bit of a, of a roadblock. Um, the other thing are there are badges that they in include in the game, items that give you extra powers uh, for your characters. Some of them let you uh, swim faster, run faster, or jump higher. Some people will love these, but I felt they kind of threw me off. Like hmm. the the level geometry in an, in a Mario game is so precise that everything is designed to accommodate uh, your running and jumping. So you know exactly when to how far you're going to jump. Yeah. If you use a badge that makes you jump a little bit farther, then you might find yourself overshooting your jumps. Huh. It, it, it's it's interesting. I didn't really jive with it as much as maybe some others will, um, but I can certainly see speedrunners using uh, badges to totally break the game and do some really inter interesting stuff. So I'm still looking forward to seeing that. John, I think I know the answer, but Super Mario Brothers Wonder, should we play it? Yes. I almost feel bad at how like wonderfully effusive i am about this game i really don't have anything seriously bad to say about it. it is an it is an incredible game it is the best 2d mario game since super mario world came out in 1991 uh you must absolutely play it um the family can play it uh all the kids parents anyone can have fun with it and yeah it's perhaps the perfect swan song for the switch uh if reports that the next nintendo console are coming soon are to be believed hmm. look at that a rave review from a Sega kid. Jonathan Orr, thank you. Thanks so much. Jonathan Orr is a senior writer with CBC Radio Digital and Day 6's gaming expert. Still to come on Day 6, a look inside the world of Indian television news where propaganda is swallowing journalism. We meet the director of the documentary while we watched. In order to be a journalist, you have to first be a nationalist. 
Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We're on public radio stations across the United States. You can listen on demand with the CBC Listen app, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts and at cbc.ca slash day6. Chrome, what are you doing? There's something out there. Don't look behind you. That's a clip from Tales from the Res, a new TV show that's streaming this week on APT and Lumi. Just in time for Halloween. Tales from the Res is a horror comedy series that adapts Blackfoot ghost stories for the screen. The first season has six episodes. All of them are narrated by the unflappable Uncle Randolph. And he's a guy that gives you the impression that he's seen a lot of ghosts. Dr. Well, you don't speak Blackfoot? You know, you can't sneak up on your old Uncle Randolph like that. The whole thing is inspired by writer and director Trevor Solway's experience growing up in Siksika Nation, south of Calgary, where he says spooky stories were and still are swapped all the time. And like the stories Trevor heard growing up, the spooky yarns and tales from the res are equal parts horror and hilarious. Trevor Solway is in Toronto this week for the Imaginative Film Festival. Trevor, hi, welcome to Day 6. Hey, good morning, Okie. Thanks for having me. This series feels like I'm watching Tales from the Crypt in the 90s. How much time did you spend binging those horror shows on TV when you were a kid? Yeah, you know, um, me and all my cousins would, you know, gather around my grandma's TV and we'd be watching these shows, you know, Tales from the Crypt, Goosebumps, Are You Afraid of the Dark? And, you know... Nine o'clock every night, we go and watch an episode, and we'd be all like buzzing with terror and, and <laughs> wonder and curiosity. And so, yeah, those shows, I, I loved them. And I always just wished there was like a native ghost story or like to see myself represented in those stories. Well, the stories that you tell in, in these episodes are, they do come from the community, don't they? Yeah, all of them are um, based on like a. A true event or a story that happened. Yeah, a lot of them came from my grandpa, Sonny, uh, my uncles, my aunts, and just people in the community, like friends and family, you know, hearing these stories, like contemporary stories, like not, they're not all set back in the day. So, so you, you, you took these stories from the community, you shot them in the community in Siksika Treaty 7, and you shot them with people that lived there. What kind of a vibe did you feel while you were doing this? Like, what, did you feel superstitious? Did you feel any connection to the the supernatural or or the otherworldly aspect of the stories you were telling? Yeah, you know, like going into this, like just writing the scripts and and knowing what I was getting myself into, I knew we needed to do like extensive work and like protocols. And so uh, before we even turned on a camera, I I, um, met with, um, you know, some elders in my community and just had tea with them and asked some questions and, you know, asked permission to shoot in certain locations and tell stories. And based on their like guidance, we totally like axed episodes and I rewrote them based on, mm. on what their feedback was. And so once I did that, I didn't really have like uh, any concerns or worries. And we always had elders close by praying for us, smudging for us. 
you know, but we were shooting late at night and overnight. And there was actually one time we were shooting in this small res house. Uh, it's episode six at the, the emotional climax of the scene. And the lights just started flickering. Whoa. And, um, and we, we, it was, it was really like, I was almost like, am I seeing this? Is this happening? <laughs> and, you know, I yelled cut after the scene was done and everyone was like, whoa, I can't believe that happened. And it was such a great take too. It was probably our best take, but we couldn't use it because the lights kept flickering. <laughs> yeah. But you told me earlier, so you're based in Siksika and, and you're a filmmaker, you're a producer. Is it limiting for you? To decide that that's where you want to work, that's where you want to to to, to create, or or is it or or, or does, does it give you something that you wouldn't get if you were creating somewhere else? No, yeah, I think um, you know, like making films back home in community, like that's my my superpower. You know, that's my yeah. secret sauce. And <laughs> like we're sitting on a, a treasure trove of stories and storytellers, and and Alberta, like. The landscape is so beautiful. It's no wonder all these productions come to shoot in Blackfoot territory. Yes. And so um, it's always made sense for me to make films back home, but it's incredibly hard. You know, a lot of the infrastructure issues that exist on the reserve get exasperated when you bring a big production to it. You know, huh. like when we want to shoot in someone's house, we're not just kicking out, you know, a family of a mom and dad and kids. We're kicking out like grandparents and cousins. And so for them to relocate, for us to use their house, it's a big ask. And so we try to compensate them for that. And just like when we want our young people on set, you know, Six of is the second largest reserve in Canada. So like mm -hmm. we have to arrange these carpools and these rides. And, and you know, when you're out there, like it's like an hour east of Calgary and you forget a prop or you forget a costume or a piece of equipment, mm -hmm. you kind of have to adapt your story or your film to that. And if you're making it in a studio or in Calgary or Los Angeles or wherever, you could just go down the street and get whatever you need. Right. But in Sixaga, you kind of have to become a crafty filmmaker. <laughs> a, a moment ago, we just heard one of the characters in the film. He's the guy that says, what, you don't speak Blackfoot? And his name is Uncle Randolph. Um, he's so funny. His role in this is kind of like narrator, but he also, there's a lot of humor packed into this character. Tell us about how you came up with Uncle Randolph. Yeah, it was actually uh, a good friend of mine named Telly James. He just always puts on these you know, funky voices and mimics like his uncles and grandpas. And so mm -hmm. created this character. And then, you know, I adopted him <laughs> and I took and I started writing for him. And so this Uncle Randolph character is like an amalgamation of all of these uncles and grandpas that we grew up listening to and these original storytellers. And the first word that we hear is in Blackfoot. How important was that for you? Yeah, it's very important. I think you hear Blackfoot throughout this whole series, like there's yes. bits and pieces. And that's how I, I'm not a fluent speaker, but when I'm being spoken to by my grandparents, it's always like every other word is Blackfoot. So I can understand that, you know? And so that's how I wrote it into the scripts. And I think it's really important for like young Blackfoot kids to hear their language spoken on like a really cool pop culture kind of like series, something they think is cool. Because I remember when I was growing up, like Blackfoot wasn't cool. It wasn't cool to celebrate your culture. And so all of my films are trying to correct that and make people proud of who they are. If there's one takeaway from the series, it's that things can go badly wrong if you don't trust your elders. Yeah, that, all the episodes kind of um, teach that lesson. And, um, you know, that's just the way we were raised. Like um, every time we'd hear a story like this, there was always, 
you know, my grandpa said, that's why you don't do this. That's why you don't go by the river at night. That's why you don't look outside at night or whistle at night. There's all these like superstitious rules. Um, and me today as a 31-year-old man, like I'm still following these rules that my grandpa and grandma set out for us. You know, and, and also like it's also uh, paying homage to Nopi, um, our trickster in Blackfoot yeah. culture. And all of Nopi's stories, he's always doing everything wrong. So all these characters are like little versions of Nopi and we're supposed to learn from them. One of the mentors, one of your mentors on the project was the late Jeff Barnaby, who directed the indigenous horror film Blood Quantum. He definitely is one of the the trailblazers for indigenous horror, which is taking off as a genre right now. Where do you think the momentum behind that comes from? Yeah, I think, you know, indigenous people from all across, you know, the world, they're very tied to spirituality and, and, and superstition and wow. the supernatural. And so I know this in my backyard in Siksaga, we have a tons of like ghost stories and people love telling ghost stories. And so I think the content is there and the thirst for those stories is there. And also we're very like, you know, funny people. And so to blend the horror comedy genre, you know, is very easy for me and rewarding and just kept giving me like this creative energy to keep making that show so do you have more blackfoot ghost stories that you're going to put on film or are you, are you going to do something different next yeah you know I, i'm just getting started in indigenous horror we got greenlit for season two by aptn and yeah so we have a lot of stories um and but this season i want to create uh, a community writers room with a collective uh, that i run called the Nopi collective and so these stories are going to come from even more voices inside Sixaga. Trevor Solway, really nice to meet you. Congratulations and thanks for being with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Trevor Solway is the writer and director of Tales from the Res. You can stream it now on APTN Lumi. नमस्कार मैं रविश कुमार आपके जैसा दर्शक होना आज के समय में दुर्लभ है आज जो चैनलों में हो रहा है वो पत्रकारिता नहीं है that's Indian TV journalist Ravish Kumar. In that clip, he's telling his viewers, what's taking place today on news channels is not journalism. For nearly a decade, Kumar was a renowned anchor on NDTV in India and one of the channel's most recognizable on-air personalities. Today, he's on YouTube, having quit NDTV in the wake of a bitter fight over nationalism, propaganda, and the role of Indian media as it covers Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist BJP government. I am a nationalist, and I believe that being a nationalist is a prerequisite to being a journalist. It is time to bring down this last standing bastion of people who see nationalism as an insult, a burden. The battle lines will have to be drawn even harder now between us and them. Director Vinay Shukla tells the story in his new documentary, While We Watched. Vinay Shukla, good morning. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Why is Ravish Kumar the person that you wanted to profile to tell the story of Indian journalism under Prime Minister Narendra Modi? Ravish, uh, you know, is a very, very popular news anchor. 
people either love him or they hate him which is symptomatic of what's happening with the news today mm-hmm. you know people have very very divisive very strong opinions around the news but what i found different about ravish was you know very often you come across news anchors and they will keep praising their audiences you see news anchors say things like you know our audience is number 1 and we are here to serve the audience ravish on the other hand was not only not praising his audiences but he was actually scolding his audiences and asking them to stop watching tv completely <laughs> which i found to be quite a sort of delicious irony that here was somebody on tv asking people to stop watching tv uh, you know not only was he taking on all the governments in the country but also taking on his own audience yes so i felt like he was being really vulnerable on tv and sort of questioning his own position in the world out there and i thought that would be a good place to start to try and tell the story of journalism Let's look at the disinformation campaigns that exist in, in Indian media, because in your film, NDTV, which is the station where Ravish was working, is contrasted with these extremely pro-nationalist, bombastic news broadcasts. What do you want to show us? What do you want to tell us about the Indian news landscape? I think Indian TV news currently is is in a concerning position. you know we took the a uh, sort of uh, uh, trp driven playing to the ratings entertainment style of news uh, that the west does very well that model you know is mutated into something that is completely unchecked very often you find news anchors in india stating very openly that uh, in order to be a journalist you have to first be a nationalist mm-hmm. and it's always nation first now you know everybody loves their nation it's not a terribly original position to take but the idea of of looking at the problems of your country and journalism in general through a singular lens is concerning but it is being widely propagated in india right now and going completely unchecked and the result of that is that they're not really news broadcasts because they're incapable of of broaching any criticism of the government or or the country or or the conditions that people are living under and then one of the claims repeatedly made by these propaganda broadcasts is that ravish kumar and others are anti-nationalists why is that such a corrosive claim in india and what does that do to ravish kumar and and the trust that his audience had in him i think you have to understand that uh, we are a relatively young nation state mm-hmm. when we were formed in 1947 most people did not give us a chance so for the initial say you know a couple of decades it was very important that the idea of the nation survived people were nationalist and openly propagated themselves to be nationalists uh that memory of you know standing alongside our country is an emotional cause in india and today that memory is used to almost alarm people and draw an us versus them line mm-hmm. that either you are with the nation state or you're against it people who are disagreeing with the mainstream today are being rejected and the news is telling them that you're not against the government or you're not against xyz you're actually against the entire nation state it's a it's a very effective us versus them sort of categorization which has very dangerous consequences for the thinking class of a country mm-hmm. when nuance and when debate and dialogue is looked at through a very singular uh discourse of us versus them ultimately we are not able to have a larger dialogue around things that concern us around our problems but we are only having a discussion around who is with the idea of india and who is against it 
I want to talk about NDTV, the kind of journalism they did, and 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 why the government might be threatened by that kind of journalism. Because one of you, you show us that one of their reporters, Sarab, a young lone figure of a, of a correspondent, goes out and breaks a story about the lynching of a Muslim man over the alleged slaughtering of a cow, and. He gets this killer who was not charged for that crime up to this point to confess on camera. Can you explain how that story came to be and why it was so powerful? I think that story was more about Saurabh and, you know, he did a sting operation exposing how the law wasn't uh, being followed correctly with regards to that case. But that story is also just symptomatic of the media climate that is in India right now. And it's quite shocking that news channels themselves are not probing or investigating such stories. For example, the story that Saurabh has done is classic investigative journalism, right? Wherein you go on ground, you try and find out what's happening and you report it back to the people. In fact, that story was, you know, it did very well. It was widely celebrated and it swung the government into action, which is what the job of good journalism is. Right. But but during the broadcast, there's a technical issue. The signal is blocked and the story is not disseminated to the viewers. What happened? During that phase, very often news stories that were, again, going against the mainstreams and news networks were facing this kind of blockage, which was never, you know, sadly never traced to as to why it was happening. So what would happen is that during the midst of an ongoing broadcast, your uh, satellite feed would just freeze. And then once the broadcast was over, it, it would start working just fine. And it was strange because, you know, viewers would say that, you know, the, the same network is streaming fine on YouTube, mm-hmm. but on television, it seems to be facing a problem. We never fully understood how that was happening, but every anchor, there were a couple besides Ravish who were sort of doing difficult stories were facing this. So, well, the implication is that someone somewhere didn't want that story to go out. Sure. Someone somewhere, but without journalism, without investigative journalism that helps us point out exactly who did what, it's difficult to say, you know, who was responsible for it. And which is why I'm saying the challenge is that it's becoming increasingly hard to do this kind of journalism. So we are just left with a lot of questions, which is unhealthy for any any functioning country. Your film is like a newsroom drama because there are these scenes that repeat themselves, cake being served to say goodbye to colleagues who are leaving And each time it happens, it's more and more sad because the station is dying. It feels like it's being choked off. And it made me wonder if there's still a market for the kind of of questions and and journalism that NDTV was doing. There is definitely a market because election mandates don't really represent 100% of the entire country and what they think. Uh, You know, the voter is a very complex being. Mm -hmm. They like different things on different days. Uh, So they may vote for a certain political party, but that doesn't mean that they align themselves completely with the same. So there is a very, very big appetite for, you know, healthy journalism. There are a number of sort of YouTube channels which are doing fantastically well in India today. Mm -hmm. Their viewership, in fact, is growing so much that the traditional news networks are very worried. Uh, Increasingly, you see appeals from people, uh, you know, in the mainstream and on the government side you know, make their way into the YouTube ecosphere and, 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 and land a footprint there. So there is a big appetite among people in India uh, for a more responsible and a more mature journalism. While we watched is a story about journalism that faces enormous challenges in propaganda and in government hostility. So finally, when, when you watch this film, 
Do you think it's an optimistic story or is it a lament? I am an optimist. Uh, so I, the only reason I am able to do what I do is because I'm a perennial optimist. But optimism in today's time doesn't come cheap. You know, it's an expensive vocation. It's, it requires sacrifice. It requires you to go through a lot of soul searching and even then stick to it. So I believe that this film is, of course, my own love letter to journalism. It is a lament. But most importantly, it is my call towards sensitivity. We have gotten very, very desensitized to what's happening around us via the news. If we want to build a better world, we need a better news. And we cannot have a better news if we ourselves are completely divested from it. Vinesh Shukla, thank you very much for being with us. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. Vinesh Shukla is the director of the new documentary film, While We Watched. Rift from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the headlines, our weekly quiz. Three rifts linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the rifts, you could win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. And it's time, time, time. And it's time, time, time. It's over by ELO, Prodigy, and Give Me a Signal, and Tom Waits with Time. And Akimi Larson of Winnipeg guessed the headline that we're looking for. <sighs> the end of the long dash. CBC Radio stops broadcasting the official time signal. Congratulations, Akimi. A day six tote bag will be on its way to you soon. Now, here's this week's clue. And we're looking for the story that connects those riffs. Email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. And the prize is a day6 tote bag. You can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Time, weather, and... from the headlines. And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Annie Bender, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tasfutadesa. Our digital producer is Paul Hentiak. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. And I'm Brent Bambury. It's three days to the NBA season opener. One day to the Swiss election. 
and seven days till we meet again on day six. Well, if it doesn't make your butt pucker, it's not a pucker butt pepper. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.